Welcome to Nine to Thrive, the well-being podcast. I'm Julie Fisher, your host and positive psychology practitioner, coach, and well-being advocate. Here, you will find meaningful and lively conversations with experts, where we explore the challenges to maintaining a strong sense of well-being, along with providing tips, tools, and strategies to thrive and flourish in our ever-changing and complex world. If you're ready to create more harmony, cultivate deeper connections, foster a greater sense of well-being, and live the life you long for, then you're in the right place. Thanks so much for being here. Let's begin our journey together. Hello, and welcome to episode two of Nine to Thrive, the well-being podcast. Today, I am so excited to welcome my friend, Dawn Kutza, and fellow positive psychology practitioner and lover of all things thriving. Welcome, Dawn. Welcome. Thank you, Julie, so much for having me. It's great Mm. to see you. (laughs) So great to see you. Okay, so let me tell you a little bit about Dawn before we dive in. Dawn is a mom, a college professor, a positive psychology practitioner, and a life love relationship coach. She's passionate about helping others, especially Gen Z, which I love talking about because I have a Gen Zer. Um, she loves helping them learn to discover their authentic selves and find their path to flourish in life, love, and work. Dawn holds a PhD in educational psychology, teaches at Indiana University, and recently authored a book, which I have right here, Creating Authentic Relationships, a Love Playbook for the Next Generation. She's a certified positive psychology practitioner and thriving relationships coach. Yay! I also want to say this book just came out in the show notes. We're going to touch on a lot of things that are in this book. The book is amazing. I think one of the things I love about it, Dawn, is it's filled with science and information, the what and the why, and the how is in workbook format. Mm -hmm. The fact that there's space in this book to actually do the work is amazing. So we're going to have a link in the show notes to where you can actually purchase this book. So And congratulations, because Dawn published that book this year. And so that feels like a big milestone and amazing. Okay, before we get into the heart of our conversation about thriving relationships, I want to begin with the fact that as human beings, we are wired for connection. We need to be in relationship with other people. From the beginning of time, we've lived in cooperative communities. We have a high need to belong to, you know, a a tribe of people. Um, And I think a need to belong in really, really intimate relationships, whether that's sexual or not. We need to be known to be seen and heard and valued is really baked into our DNA. So, and... I also want to note this past year, the Surgeon General released a study that found that loneliness is at an epidemic status in our country and in our world. From a well-being standpoint, being socially connected, 
you know, as reflected by the size of our social networks, the extent to which we're involved with others, the quality of our relationships and our perception that support is available when we need it are all associated with longevity and overall well-being. We're talking about a subject that is essential for all of us to thrive and flourish. And so relationships are made up of individuals coming together. So the health of our relationships begin with the health of the individuals who are coming into that relationship. As context for our conversation, again, let's agree that all of our personal growth work is a journey, though, not a destination. So when we're talking about people who are healthy, we're talking about people who are self-aware. We're talking about people who maybe have read some personal growth books. Maybe they've dipped their toe into therapy or they've seen a coach. Um, and in the broadest sense, I think we would mean that they are self-sourcing their own happiness. So, John. What do you think it means to self-source your own happiness? Setting us all up for this. I love it. So I would say when it comes to self-sourcing, I did not understand this concept as much in my 20s and 30s that I think the generation today gets. You know, they talk about um, self-care. They'll talk about boundaries. <laughs> They'll talk about their self-worth, things like that. But I can say as somebody now who's been single, meaning I was in a marriage for 15 years and have been single, consciously single for 12 now, I really had to learn this concept of self-sourcing. So to me, it means taking responsibility fully for our own well-being, meaning well-being, I'll, I'll define that, meaning how we think, how we feel and how we act, and then kind of our reflections and evaluations about how that we feel they can act. So it's not expecting other people to fill us up or to make us happy. Um, I also use and like to think about happiness more holistically, that happiness isn't just, you know, feelings moment to moment, but in our positive psychology um, flourishing center certification program that we went through together, we, we learned about Martin Seligman's PERMA-V model of well-being, which has to do with the P's for positive emotional states, navigating the negatives with the positives, um, being fully engaged in life, increasing our engagement and enjoyment of life, um, our relationships, being the R and how important those are, meaning that we get from life, the purpose that we have, and kind of our spiritual core that we're evolving through. Our accomplishments and achievements, certainly those are the things we do day to day. Those are peace. I think in this country in particular, we focus almost primarily our worth and value and happiness on that A, that achievement piece, which incidentally, Tal Ben-Shahar and others who are famous positive psychologists actually don't have the A in their models of positive psychology. Um, they just leave those out because I think they feel they're already stressed enough. But then the last, the, the letter V, vitality, has to do with your physical health and your ability to take care of yourself, you know, your body and your sleep. So when I think about well-being, it used to probably everything when I thought I'm going to be happy was just based on my accomplishments. So I was very in control in my 20s and 30s of my accomplishments. And I went to college and then I went to graduate school and then I started a job. But none of those things were really making me happy. 
And now I can really see a little bit older that is because I was just focusing on one aspect of well-being. So I just look at happiness much more holistically now. And I just like to say that all five drivers are super important. And once I started sourcing all five, the accomplishments also came along and were less important. And, you know, if I had a, a mishap or a mistake at work or didn't accomplish something I thought I would, it did not negatively impact my happiness like it used mm-hmm. to, which was a great love that. stress. So reducing some of those areas that cause you stress are just as important as trying to increase those areas that can bring you joy. Yes. <laughs> when Dawn and I learned and studied positive psychology, um, whether it's Martin Seligman or many of these models, what they're saying is it's not one of these things. One of my favorite books is Sean Akers, The Happiness Advantage. And he also touches on this. You're speaking to achievement specifically. You can't over-index on achievement and have none of the others and be happy. You need a little bit of each of these. And I think the other thing in terms of self-sourcing, this whole idea of self-sourcing our happiness, one of the beautiful things about this PERMA-V model is that you are able to self-source in each of these areas. These are tools and strategies that you can incorporate into your daily life that are meant to be self-sourcing. So that's one of the things I love about the science of positive psychology. And again, we're in applied positive psychology. So we're taking the science and actually using tools and strategies that are backed up by the science, but are able to be incorporated into life to actually help people thrive and flourish. Yes. And Julie, I love that so much. I think I was trying to do a lot of these things naturally over the years. You, you glean little pieces, but having the model, and I actually use that in my classes that I teach at IU now, the students really do respond to saying, I can do these practices. We are all works in progress. So it's not like you have to be perfectly healthy before you get into yeah. a relationship. So I wanted to just, if I could just make sure I clarify what is what I think is meant in good faith by that healthy component. Yes. Um, so I can give you one example. If I'm single for 12 years, so I could kind of sit around waiting, right, for someone to to travel with me or stimulate me with conversation. Or yes. I feel sad because I don't have physical touch. Right? So you have these deficits that you're you're thinking of. I'm not happy because of these things, you know, or I could ask myself, what is it I really need in this moment? And can I source some of those things? So for instance, I go get a massage every month. I am not in a relationship. Human touch is very important. And part of my physical vitality, you know, is feeling good in my body and, you know, getting touched by somebody in such a nurturing, kind, compassionate way, you know, really savoring that experience is one way that I have learned to self-source. Let's say they have, are in the throes of an addiction or they have a personality disorder or some mental illness. That's the obvious form of unhealth. Yes. But I think that there's just things from our past that make us unhealthy. We bring into relationships, things like attachment wounds. Perhaps we have some insecurities and anxious attachment issues from our childhood that we have not dealt with. And then we come into a relationship and we are letting, are being triggered. Those are being triggered that could cause a lot of conflict. Um, And if we don't heal those, then we are going to, in a sense, bring the relationship down 
and have a lot of conflict in that realm because we're stuck there. Right. Yes. The other yes. one I just want to out myself on, I've definitely worked through some attachment issues, but self-worth is another example. What we don't think of that as traditionally being unhealthy, but many of us suffer from low self-worth. And in that sense, it's almost like you'll bring that low self-worth into your relationship. Nothing your partner can almost do or say will fill you up or make you happy. And so then the relationship ends up kind of centering around them trying to make you feel better or prop up your self-worth, right? And it can taint the relationship if one person is very insecure and can't receive the love or receive the things that the gifts that the partner is giving. So that kind of stunts the relationship. So yes. self-worth is one that I personally also had to work on in, in my 30s and 40s and definitely after my divorce realized this was an issue and how it played out in my marriage. And you know, learning how to fortify yourself to the core and find what is your authentic skills and strengths and your self-worth, that's so important because you then when you get into a relationship, you're meeting that person from a much healthier place. But you also know when your self-worth or your authenticity is being compromised in a potentially toxic relationship. You can hold on to something. You know what you want to, you know, how you feel good about yourself, where you want to go, what your goals, what your values are. And that gives you something to hold on to and not lose when you're in a relationship. If you don't build yeah. all that up before you get into a relationship, you can often get consumed by just what yes. this other person's world and life and everything is. So part of the yes. book and why I created this for young people is because of this just gaping hole that I had had in my own, creating my own self-worth in my twenties. And that process of doing that in my thirties and forties, what if I would have started that in my twenties, right? And yes. what would that have looked like to build my core? And I had to really dive into some research and books on what create you know creates what's causing some low self worth issues for us as a society and women and this generation or whatever our parents things we've seen and then how can we start to get our own alignment with our own values and see our own worth you know tools from positive psychology on finding and discovering our strengths or aligning ourselves with our values those kinds of things are all in the book because to me that's where you need to start and, and do that personal work yourself to get yourself as healthy as possible. That's kind of what I mean by health in the book before getting into a relationship yes. with someone else. Yes. And it's so often I think we want other people to change. As a coach, I'm reminding my clients all the time mm -hmm. that we're not here to change other people. I'm here to do my work, right? I'm, I need to choose. I need to be able to look at my own life okay. with a certain degree of self-awareness. So sometimes a relationship is that mirror for personal growth where I can see when I react strongly to something, right, that's happening in a relationship, I can see, oh, that may be a trigger for me. And that's a place for me to grow further. I, I think the word that comes up for me is curiosity. Mm -hmm. Am I bringing in curiosity for myself? Am I able to look at myself? You brought up childhood. Am I able to look at my family of origin? and say, huh, I brought some things from my lived experience. And some of those things may serve me in adulthood and in my relationships. And some of those things may not be serving me or my partner. And so can I come at that from the place of I want to change? And can I be in a relationship with someone 
who has the same ability and the same sense of self-awareness to say, ah, I want to work towards the healthiest version of myself. Therefore, knowing that it's a process, there's no nirvana here. I want to get to the healthiest version of myself today. Where am I on the continuum? And in that constant growth, I have the ability or we have the ability to co-create an authentic and thriving relationship. Right. Yes. We're all messy, right? We're all complicated. Yes. Yes. I found that too often we have very unrealistic expectations for what we want in a partner, right? Um, From movies, from things we see on social media, um, just because we have such insanely high expectations for ourselves and our own achievement and accomplishment, you know, we, we transpose those onto somebody else. Um, we have very high expectations. And often I'll hear people say, I want this, 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 you know, from my partner. But then we don't look at ourselves to say, you know, am I, am I all those things uh, in a relationship? I'm not always the peachiest person to deal with, or I have insecurities that come up. So there's always a bit of, knowing sort of eyes open when you're getting into a relationship, what it is that's on the table that you're both going to be working on. Right. And just admitting that you're both still works in progress and that there's going to have to be work done by you both individually. And then, you know, that's going to affect you both together. And then how do we grow from there into something where the relationship is a piece that's the third piece that's really thriving. I think those are all important questions. And something that I, again, put in the book, because I feel it's so important that we know what we want, what are realistic expectations or not? What is, uh, what can we live with in a partner? How do we know what's really going to be healthy for us and what we can sort of trade off on? What are reasonable trade-offs for our What's non-negotiable, right? Non-negotiable. Red yes. flags, yellow flags, green flags. I think the best thing you could do in a relationship, if you think this is something serious that you're like, just, you know, make a commitment in is yes. that you talk about this model openly. Do we both sort of see this as the, the, the model of a thriving relationship? Do we see, understand that we both have stuff that we, we're willing to keep excavating that stuff as it comes up, looking at it with the fresh lens, owning it. And then trying to support each other while we continue to work on this, right? Yes. Um, And then knowing that our ultimate goal is to get to a place where we're also spending some of that time and energy on each other, nurturing the relationship itself, which we know through, you know, many people like the Gottmans and the Center for Thriving Relationships, where I got my other coaching certification from, they're, you know, have compiled amazing amounts of um, research and expertise and, you know, literature, um, on what a thriving relationship truly does look like at that relationship level. So knowing that that requires work as well, that just, just doesn't magically come Two healthy people can get together. That doesn't necessarily mean that the the relationship will thrive, you know, energy put into that relationship, even to, to healthy people. Yes. You can't only be doing individual work. Right. I continue to work on myself and I continue to stay curious. And I also need to be, I'm going to say, brave enough, vulnerable enough, empathetic enough to attune with this other person and 
be interested and curious about their growth, their wants, their needs, as much as I am in my growth, my wants, my needs. Yes, absolutely. I love it. Okay. So we have two people who are working on themselves. They're doing their thing. What are the foundations of high quality relationships? Yes. So I would say the absolute foundation of a high quality relationship, again, going back to my work from the Center for Thriving Relationships, this was so beautifully put. Um, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with adult attachment theory. There's a wonderful book by Sue Johnson. It's called Hold Me Tight. And she took the work of John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth around childhood attachments styles Mm -hmm. and sort of applied it to adult relationships. So I would have to say that One of the most fundamental things I've learned is that so much conflict in relationships comes from a fundamental not feeling secure, not Mm -hmm. feeling like that bond is secure. So the most important thing I would think would be trust, vulnerability, you know, basic respect, but really feeling like that person is there for you. They have your back, that you matter. And the, the notion of adult attachment theory, I love because if you think about when we're an infant, our brain's wired to connect. We know this. It's fundamental to who we are in our DNA. If you're a child who cannot get a connection with your adult caregiver and you cannot form that bond, you literally may not survive, right? right. So it's like our brains have this system of dopamine and oxytocin and things that get like reward and pleasure around connecting through attention and holding and love, you know, just infant care bonding, yes. right? And there's a, a wonderful analogy and I'll I'll talk about that in a second, about, you know, those needs that we have to fundamentally have someone take care of us and make us feel safe, make us feel secure, um, makes the world more predictable, gives us the secure base for us to go out, sort of develop as a human, like learn in the world, you know, and and then later individuate into something. But if we did not have that security, you know, fundamentally say we lived through our childhood in fear, but we did not have somebody that helped us kind of co-regulate so that we could learn how to regulate ourselves as an adult. Yes. Nobody helped us with that. The world becomes a very scary, unpredictable place. And we're unsecure of ourselves and our own value. And we're going to bring that into almost every moment, every friendship, every romantic relationship. And one thing I learned through coaching couples is that nine times out of 10, if they're having conflict, it's because one partner or both partner, they're not feeling that level of secure attachment that they're supposed to be feeling. So um, there's a wonderful, I hope we can link it in the show notes. There's a wonderful video by Sue Johnson on YouTube that shows the, uh, the still face experiment of an infant when, you know, they've been in a reciprocal moment, you know, several moments with a caregiver who's nurturing and loving in a secure attachment cycle. And then what happens when that mother turns away and just still faces the child? You can see the child's nervous system just breaks down. Like it doesn't have that security, that predictability, that safety. And what happens and how the child goes through a series of kind of panicked responses to get that parent's attachment back, to to recreate the bond, like get the bond back in place. It's heartbreaking. But then she shows in this video, the same dynamic happening in a couple, in couples therapy, when that Mm -hmm. secure attachment breaks down. And the one partner's not giving the other partner that safety that they're asking for and that connection that they're asking for. So you can really see, I think it's a shame when we say that, you know, we don't need people or that's weak 
or you shouldn't rely on people or need that, you know, that connection never goes away. Okay. What's interesting is what comes, what comes up for me when I think about this is again, in that sense of we've come in to this, having done some of our own work. So we've also worked on sourcing security within ourselves, right? So it's that balance of, I want to source safety and security within myself, right? And I do that with all of these tools that I'm learning and I'm growing with. And perhaps a piece of that, Dawn, is that Maybe I didn't have the most secure attachment when I was young. Maybe my, my, one of my parents was really distant or, you know, or inconsistent, really excited one minute and then really distant the next. So I didn't know what to expect. So we were doing our own work, sourcing within and then coming into this relationship where we're trying to build trust. And knowing that that person is going to honor confidentiality, mm-hmm. see us, really see us, not be scared of the messiest pieces of us, mm-hmm. would not run away is equally as essential. So it's that both and, right? I need to source it within myself. Yes. And to your point, I do think I'm, I don't know, but I'm making up that in the United States, we so focus on individualization on mm-hmm. yeah. um, that it impacts our ability to be vulnerable, <laughs> be vulnerable and trust other people and see that as the quote unquote, the normal way of a relationship evolving. And so I think that's such an important piece of this both and. Mm-hmm. I want to be safe and secure within myself, believe in my own abilities, believe in self-sourcing my own happiness. Mm -hmm. And I want to be able to lean in, trust, be vulnerable, be empathetic with my partner Mm -hmm. and feel secure in that relationship. Yes. It's like not going too far with the independence to where, you know, hyper-individualism can become self centeredness. Exactly. Right. It can come to where you only are self-preserving or you're only self-sourcing and you don't want, you don't want anybody to encroach on any of your boundaries. Whereas in relationship with another human, you have to be willing to do some give and take a little bit and feel like overall that relationship, that person is worth that, right? The the cost of the compromising or the cost of the inconveniences sometimes or putting someone else in front of yourself, you know, if you truly love another person, you want to give to them because you love them and want to see them happy. Yes. Right? yes. Okay. The other thing I want to talk about is the five A's. Oh God. Yes. I love the five A's. David Rico in his book, and he's written a few of them, but one of them is, is all about the foundations of high quality relationships. The five A's have to do with these fundamental needs that we all have. As humans, around other humans, basically. So we all need to feel attended to, like that, that, that we matter, right, to somebody else. These are also the foundations, I think, of a secure relationship. So the first A stands for attention. So listening to the partner's wants and needs and feeling listened to by the partner. So if fundamentally we can't get our partner's attention or they're always on the phone or they're always taking a call on something else or work or something else is more important 
that sort of gives us information about where we're prioritized, right? We, so we want, we need to feel like if a person's going to love us and show up for us and see us, fundamentally, attention <laughs> has to be there. So, yes. so that's one. So the second one is acceptance. Um, acceptance has to do with acknowledging that our partner has their own wants and needs and that they could differ from our own wants and needs and that that's okay. I'm going to accept them, not judge them for it or deny them for that. That's just yes. part of all of us want to be feeling autonomous and valued. The third one is appreciation, which is just validating the efforts of our partner and doing acts that show gratitude back. So it's kind of like a, a mutual, I would say, appreciation. But that also reinforces the efforts that we both put in and continually kind of keeps the, you know, an upward spiral of growth in a positive direction. So giving each other feedback, for instance, is so important, and especially when they've done something. And incidentally, Gottman does a lot of interesting research, the Gottman Institute, about the fact that when it comes to appreciation or any of these days, you want to keep at least a five to one ratio of positive deposits in the relationship to one negative. So just making sure that you recognize at least five times what your partner's done, their efforts, their strengths, their um, sweetness, whatever it is you love about them to, to every one criticism. And I hear people all the time get a big aha about this and go, oh my gosh, I'd say I'm probably more like 50 negatives to one. Yes. And when you're doing things for your partner to try to make their life easier or make their life more joyful, making sure that they're appreciating those things, you know, is yes. important. Now, should your partner be the person that's boosting up your self-esteem and appreciating how no. amazing you are? You know, that's something else. We want to feel seen and appreciated. And so to really get into like good love, you know, like love that's, I think, really uh, able to go into deep depths of vulnerabilities and things, you have to be willing to put that authentic self out there let it be seen. And then it's either going to be appreciated or rejected. And it's the people that want to appreciate it and, and love you for that messiness that yes. are the people that are going to stick by you and then allow you to grow more into your authentic self within that relationship over time. And the last two A's, the, the one uh, second to last one's affection, which is just a physical expression, which gives the, does a few things. It, tells the partner that we are paying attention to them in that moment, that we're accepting their bodies and who they are, um, that we have this kind of desire to connect with them and bond with them. So it's showing that we have value for them. But it also physiologically affection has been shown to like put us in our parasympathetic, right? So yes. we feel safety and security when we feel like there's kind, mutual, nurturing affection. And the yes. last one is this allowing, which kind of takes acceptance a step further and really is just about supporting the partner's um, individuality, allowing them to change and grow. Because who we marry in our 20s, we stay together. They will not necessarily be that person in 10, 15, you know, years. So there has to be this allowing of growth and allowing of change and revelations and you know, um, we've made these commitments to each other. Are we allowed to kind of go back and talk about them and check in with them and, you know, see if they're still working for both of us and um, just having that ability to be flexible in the relationship. So I just think those five A's, you know, I love them because now I think, wow, those are, you can turn those into kind of action, right? I know I need to pay more active attention to my partner. I need to make sure they know that I'm not judging them and that I'm accepting them. I need to check that in myself. 
I need to make sure I appreciate the effort they put in. I need to show them affection because it matters for all these reasons. And then am I really allowing them to be who they want to be? Or am I trying to keep them who I want them to be? Again, these are great things to check in with yourself on. Mm -hmm. Do I have a partner who's 100% accepting me in all my messiness? And am I extending this same to my partner? Or I have a partner who I don't think is appreciating me. And am I secure enough in this relationship that I can say, I'm feeling a little underappreciated right now in this relationship? Mm -hmm. Is there something going on? So I think. This is, again, great mirror work, a place for us to hold a mirror up to ourselves to say, how am I doing here? And then how's my partner doing? And ultimately, how's our relationship doing at this stage? I have to mention, because I do love Chapman's Love Languages, Mm. um, I think really helpful to see what the way that, you know, love works for your partner. And as opposed to making them wrong, right? Wait, they don't, they're not responding the way I want them to respond. Understanding the way they give and receive love, I think is so, so helpful. The other thing is you have a model from the Center um, for Thriving Relationships that I also love, Mm -hmm. which is more about the stages of relationships. So let's talk about that. In a thriving relationship, what are those stages? And it's not always the honeymoon. Right. Oh my gosh. So yes, I love this. This was very helpful and and it's helpful on many levels. So the there's the first stage of of most relationships is like the honeymoon period or the romance phase, right? That's where honestly, and and I, I have to just reference out someone else. Her name is Alex Nashton. She has a master's in, I think, neuroscience, and she has a podcast called Talk Nerdy to Me, and she does an amazing job. She has a couple episodes on this, with what's happening in our brains and chemically and in our biology when we're in a romance phase. Fascinating. She goes through our dopamine because the first like six months are we're wired to like lock in this potential mate so we can procreate with them. So our yes. bodies and our brains are designed to obsess over this partner, try to pull this partner as close as possible. It's like being a gambler kind of on a slot machine with this intermittent like reinforcement of being around this person it gives us so much, you know, elevated dopamine. So the romance yes. stage is not as full of novelty, it's full of variety and it's triggering all of our happy chemicals. It's almost like being addicted, you know, to Coke in the brain. What's happening when you're in romance. But that only lasts for about six months. And our brains naturally go back to homeostasis and they kind of just get desensitized to things to the point where after six to eight months, the chemicals have the chemical highs kind of waned. So there, there in and of itself is an interesting lesson, just understanding what's happening in that early stage, because if that's where a lot of people, when they start to feel the wane of the, the chemicals, they just want to try a new partner. The high's gone and they think it must be the partner and they leave. We're all going to go through this romance phase. There has to be, we have to recognize there's an inherent positivity bias in our brains during that phase. Yes. And that this part, we're not going to be seen clearly, you know, during this stage. And then two, that our biology is basically in control. And that knowing that just because it starts to wane doesn't mean that it should be over. This partner's not right for you. So there's just yes. through that one stage is kind of a lot 
things to take away from that, which I love. But then what happens is let's say that people get married quick when they're on the chemical high. You know what I mean? And they may not have their positivity bias about the relationship is there. Then when they get married and a year into it, they're like, wow, this is not the right person. Like we didn't really have a values match. We didn't go deep enough in that romance phase to get to know each other and align our vision, align our values. Right. Right. So it's a little bit another lesson to learn there about that romance stage is what we do during that relationship. So there's a lot of people talk about trying to pace that differently, slow that down, make sure you're doing conscious conversations and activities around values, alignment, visioning, future. I put all that kind of stuff in my book, too, um, just to make sure that you're going into committing to somebody who's might be right for you. So the first is just romance based. I think that's fascinating. But then what often happens, especially if you're, you know, once you're after the chemical high phase, the romance period is we go into sort of a power struggle phase because this positivity bias in our brain is wearing off for our partner. And we're starting to like rubbers meeting the road. The good chemicals aren't there. And now we're seeing them every day. They're not necessarily trying as hard. There could be starting to be some anger or annoyance or our differences really come to the forefront. There's more and more conflict. Um, and then we start to lose our lack of our desire for things and we can disconnect and feel this disconnect. Now, sadly, many marriages stay in power struggle. They stay in like this conflict phase the right. entirety of their marriage. And I can say right. that that was my marriage for 15 years. We were married very quickly. And then we went through like this power struggle where we had all these conflicts constantly and we never were able to fix them. Okay. So we, and we were married 15 years. So that happens so many times. And when couples come into therapy or come into coaching, they are often in this power struggle phase and they've been in it. I mean, sometimes for a long time, decades. Okay. Then you go. So what has to happen if you want to get out of that power struggle phase or move beyond is really focus on how committed are we? There's actually discernment Mm -hmm. therapy that you can do as a couple because not all couples want to fix after they've been in power struggle. Some couple Like, look, you know, one's already checked fully out. It was a bad match. Let's just end this. Let's not spend time in therapy. It's not always salvageable. But let's say both couples come together in coaching and say, yes, we we are not satisfied with the way things are, but we are willing to make this powerful commitment to look at ourselves and, you know, recognize a lot of this starts with us and that we've got our own healing to do. And our partner has this going on and their healing. And that's what that would look like. And we care enough about each other in this relationship that we are going to commit to doing that work to heal ourselves within each other, you know, the relationship with each other. And then, you know, we're going to do this work to try to end up with a thriving relationship down the road. So that commitment is huge to really listen, apply the five A's, you know, deepen our connection, strengthen our attachment, fix those issues with ourselves. And then you can get to thriving, which is the final stage. And that's where you're kind of truly saying, look, we are so inspired by each other. We can do things together and and leverage our resources, our time, our love, our energy to create things, you know, maybe better for ourselves, better for our children, better for our families, better in the world, you know, or, you know, just truly enjoy and save our life together in a way that we feel so free and open and we're not wounding each other all the time. You know, we're really spending more time having positive emotions with each other than negative. That would be truly thriving. Yes. I love that. When I think about a thriving relationship and I think about all those stages in order to get to thriving, it starts with I think it really starts with this whole realistic view, right? Mm-hmm. Of 
myself and my partner a realistic view of all of the ups and downs that happen in life Mm. that when we walk down the aisle with someone, we have no idea what life is going to throw at us. So many of us have been sold the Cinderella story. Mm. And I think it's this huge barrier Mm. to this idea that it's happily ever after. And, and, you know, I have millennial children. I have a Gen Z daughter as well. And I think my kids don't totally believe in Cinderella. You know, I don't think they believe that it's this fairy tale thing that your prince is coming. They're all self-sourcing. They're, they're independent. They're doing their own things. And so I don't think they're looking to be rescued or any of that. And I think for most of us, because we are so influenced by media and movies and all that in ways that even when we know, okay, that rom-com, we know that that's not realistic. We're so influenced, almost like woven into the fabric of us because so few things that we look at, read about, watch are showing a real relationship with all of its messiness that goes to thriving. So we can watch marriage story and see a marriage that ended, right? So we can we can see the messiness that I think seeing relationships where people struggle through and commit in the hardest part are much harder to find. I could not agree more. And I will add to this that unfortunately, the majority of the relationships we've seen our parents and grandparents have were not thriving. Right. Truly thriving. If you define thriving as two individuals who are trying to find their authentic selves and they're kind of trying to self source and get the most out of life they can, truly coming together, you know, out of a mutual you know, give and take, love, giving each other the five A's, creating like this vision. They both get more from the relationship than they would by themselves. Like we've rarely seen that. Yes, you know, I, don't I think, totally I think this agree. generation, I'm so excited and why I wrote the book for them, you know, for, because I feel like they have an opportunity to create this because the yes. core of it is self-worth and authenticity. For them, they're talking about mental health. They're recognizing toxic masculinity. You know, they're recognizing they want equality. Like the one person's not doing all the work and all the load and all the things they don't want to do. And the other person's fully owning and showing up. And, you know, I'm like, that was un- that is unheard of. I feel like this generation as indiv- their individuality is making all of them want to have a journey, want to have their own like personal growth journey or things they want to accomplish or, you know, do in this lifetime, right? Whether it's travel yes. or whether it's have a child. So they have these goals. So now they can have a conversation to say, here's what two individual paths coming together like this would look like. And what are some of those things we would need to negotiate? Because I can tell you, I did not have any of these conversations. <laughs> wish I would have had this. The book I wish I would have had when I was 20 did not have these conversations. Yes, yeah. I agree. I think this generation is so open to therapy. They're oh. so open to coaching. They're so mm-hmm. open to reading. I think those things are also today so much more acceptable from society. And I'm going to say this book is going to be 
such an amazing tool. Dawn, I have so appreciated this conversation with you. Uh, One last question for Mm -hmm. you. Authentic relationships are just one of the key ingredients for thriving. Uh And there are so many. Um, And since this podcast is about all the ways that we thrive, I'm asking each guest on the podcast, what are your three to thrive? What three things do you do regularly? I would say at the top is probably taking responsibility for self-sourcing my own happiness. So looking at my feelings and asking myself, what do I really need in this moment? Am I just scared or insecure or bored? What can I do to meet that for myself? Right. Um, Sometimes it involves turning to a friend or nurturing a relationship, though. So, you know, that's a part of the, the, you know, path to well-being. I'd say my second thing is I read a book in my 20s. It was by Timothy Miller. It was called How to Want What You Have. And ever since then, I have been sort of striving to want less materially and also practice gratitude, you know, and this new sort of in positive psychology, we learned about sort of gratitude 2.0 or something, this savoring, this notion of not just being mindful in a moment, but, you know, really thinking about how we're feeling and the goodness it's giving us and trying to kind of stretch it and amplify it. And then just be grateful that we can have that experience and that for that thing. You know, I think so savoring and gratitude, I do a lot, um, almost every day. Well, definitely every day, multiple times. And then I would say the last thing I probably do is uh, it's part of the self-worth work that I think never truly ends. But I keep going back to my core strengths. And I think about the things that matter most to me in my life and how I'm living it. So things like authenticity, being vulnerable. Um, having intellectual humility because I work in academia and I just find that there's not enough intellectual humility sometimes, you know, always being kind, no harm. And just knowing that I love to learn, that's my top strength. Then those principles guide how, what I put my energy into every day. And also because of them at the end of the day, I can look back and say, wow, you know, I was authentic. I was able to be vulnerable. I stayed intellectually human, you know, um, humble. and I stayed in alignment with those values today and also had a chance to learn and and use some of my strengths. It was an awesome day. You know, so I kind of let my values guide me at this point and I give myself some self-compassion and say, you know, did I just live my values today? And if I did, then I have to, you know, cherish myself a little bit for that. That has not been something I was always able to do. Yes. Gratitude is my top strength. And Mm -hmm. that's definitely one of my three to thrive on a daily basis. And Uh savoring, which I didn't really know about until we studied Uh positive psychology, has Uh been such an incredibly beautiful component of that. Yes. So I love those. Thank you, Dawn. I feel so honored and grateful to have had you join me for this conversation. And to all of our thrivers listening, thank you. Together, let's be brave, curious, grateful, and kind. And we will see you next time. We've come to the end, my friends. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Nine to Thrive, the well-being podcast. I really appreciate you listening. I invite you to follow and like this show on whatever platform you're using. If you liked today's episode, please share it with a friend, share it on social media, or write a review. My goal is to provide useful information that will help you to thrive and flourish. And I always welcome your feedback. 
If you want to receive more strategies to increase your well-being in your inbox each month, head over to my website, juliefishercoaching.com and sign up for my newsletter. Until next time, take care, Thrivers.